Welcome to Dyslexia and Beyond, where we interview people who have dyslexia and have succeeded by using it to their advantage, as well as people who are experts in dyslexia and other learning differences. My name is Marco Montalbano, and I am a student who has dyslexia and will be your host today. Today we'll be interviewing Blake Mahovic. He was diagnosed with a learning difference when he was 12 years old and could not read or write until high school. Today he works as a learning support teacher to help people with learning differences succeed, has a degree in computational mathematics, and played on the Canadian National Rugby League team. So Blake, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm good, yeah. Um, a little tired. It's that time of the week uh, where you're Thursday and you're almost at Friday and you, you're feeling a little a you, little drained. You want it to be Friday, but... You want yeah. it to be Friday, but it's not quite. And uh, you know you've got one more day and I have a course all day tomorrow. So <laughs> yeah. um dreading that a little. Um, so... Before we get into this, would you like to tell us a bit more about your type of dyslexia? Because, you know, it is an umbrella term, and I think this is a good sort of icebreaker where I learn more about how your dyslexia functions, and the listener does too. And by doing that, we get, gain a better understanding of each other. Yeah, totally. So um, th th I think this is a really difficult question to answer in terms of you only know yourself, right? Like you, the only perspective I've ever known is my own. So any answer that I can give you is going to be very much tied to like anecdotal stories of how I have seen that other people think and um, and how they how they navigate the world. So what I can tell you is that I have, um, if we were looking like psych ed, uh, psychological educational assessment kind of deal, like you would see markers in very low working memory. Um, audio processing, reading speed, um, writing speed and writing fluency are all on the very low end. And then um, where back in the back in the day and still still now to this point, how we kind of assess dyslexia or, dis or learning disabilities is a difference between these areas that you would normally tend to see in someone who has dyslexia that are lower and then a discrepancy between other fields. So if we're talking like verbal comprehension, um, visual, uh, like uh, uh, visual manipulation, all that kind of stuff are quite, quite high in my profile. So all that really means is that if you were to have a conversation with me, uh, you would not know that I was dyslexic and you would, you wouldn't, label me as disabled i guess which is something i would like to talk to you about i guess is like that lab labeling of, of yeah. disability and what you more see is if you were to see like my my written words uh very poor like i i was diagnosed with dysgraphia which isn't something you see too much anymore but that's um fine motor control and the ability to produce like my handwriting is still pretty much illegible and my spelling and my grammar and um yeah it, that yeah, that's, that's where it's really one. prominent because a lot of people think of it more of a disability or a problem and yeah. i think that's the wrong way to look at it and i think maybe over time i think you all might also agree with me on this one. Oh yeah absolutely i think that this is you look when you look at rates of um learning disabilities and people often just point towards dyslexia and adhd which generally go like when you see one you tend to see like some form of the other uh, in a student um and we we look at numbers and that's about 20 percent of the population right so my argument is and plenty of other scholars arguments is not 
I'm going to call myself a scholar in this moment, is that if we were to say 20% of the population has a disability, Darwinism would not allow for that. So that we call something that affects 20% of all people a disability, I, I find mind-boggling and i think that when we look at when we break apart those those terms and what we're talking about we're talking about specifically reading and writing disabilities look at where we are as a as a species and where we are in our evolution along that species like we have only been reading and writing as the western world for the last like 200 years is that being like generally accepted that yeah. that's something all people should learn um so in my mind, it's kind of a manufactured disability and actually a necessity for an effective community for people to people's brains to be wired differently. And then we can go into like all the strengths around what, like how is a dyslexic brain strong? Yeah, so you're saying it's more of our current system that makes it seem like a disability than it actually being a disability. That's that's like, that's it exactly. That we are the disability is manufactured by a system that honestly. Uh, Marco, if I were to get into it and I were to put my um, my labor rights hat on, it is a system of oppression that was put in primarily by the church. So the church were the were the people who were were pushing, making the drive on the reading and writing, and then by the upper class to as a way of oppression of the lower classes is that everything go looks in legal documents and everything that power came through writing, and we we, we actually see that again when we look at indigenous communities in canada that that same system of like writing and literacy oppression was put onto um first nations groups when they were handed documents that they couldn't read yep and this is actually really relevant for the week it is because this yeah. is um orange shirt week at our school where we recognize the the residential school system uh in canada which strongly have caused generational trauma for many indigenous groups and part of this system of oppressing the indigenous people was these treaties yeah. Um, but getting back onto the topic. <laughs> oh, we could we could yeah. talk about that for a long yeah, time. I think go, it's that's a, that's a big discussion. Um, I think one really interesting thing that's if to look at in terms of indigenous populations when you look at populations that are are um, have a predominantly oral tradition rather than a written tradition, you see these levels of what we would call disabilities in reading and writing um, more prominent. Yeah. And like the the theory around that is that the it, dyslexia is a storyteller's brain it's actually a much more effective way of storing and passing on information um in term through that through that oral tradition yeah, yeah, yeah. so based off this do you either want to we can go like branch off in two directions here we can go towards more about dyslexic brain or we can focus a bit more on your story so i'm happy to do one than the other both on yeah um uh, let's talk we'll do a bit of um dyslexic brain i think yeah, and then yeah, that we'll seems to be where we're heading right now and then we'll go back to your story yeah totally yeah. so you actually quite know quite a bit about just the structure of dyslexia as someone who has dyslexic and what their brain is like yeah. and like you called it a storyteller's brain do you want to go a bit more into about i would love to yeah so um for those people listening i guess like a, a lot of my job is actually communicating what dyslexia is um and making and hoping that i can make children feel safe and seen when it comes to their way of viewing the world now like what a lot of people's experience of dyslexia is is they think that words move around on a page so words 
don't move around on the page. Like, I get that one a lot. Yeah. I, I've, I, every, for the last few years, I've been doing speeches and talks about dyslexia at my school to try to educate one. I did a really big speech last year, which made it to like the second rounds. Didn't f make it to finals, but got to what they call eliminations. And the goal of that was to try to demystify dyslexia or make it more understandable to people. Because I, even now, I still get comments that are like, do the words move around the page? What do you see when you read the word? Yeah. Um, though there are some aspects, some, there is a portion of dyslexia, I think called visual dyslexia, that does have um, words move around on a page. That's more of a, less of the conventional dyslexia, from yeah. my experience, than a stereotype of dyslexia well absolutely and like my rebuttal to that is always i i'm not high i'm dyslexic like those <laughs> the words are not moving yeah. around um and what actually happens is that um in a dyslexic brain we don't have these um established connections to and we have a la lower density of gray matter in our audio processing part of our brain so it means that we spend a lot of time decoding words um, and then partnered with that is a low working memory. Um, so you, by the time you've decoded a word and you've got to the end of the sentence, you've actually forgotten what was at the beginning of the word or at the beginning of the sentence. So it's a lot of rewriting, uh, yep. rereading. Do you so, want to talk a bit about what gray matter is for people who might I, not yeah, be Yeah, so I will totally, I'll go into that now. So gray matter is like the, that's, that's the, the, the workhorse in the brain. That's like the processes, right? So that, that's where you do, um, where you think, yeah, it, it, it's what calculates everything in the brain. Yeah, is the gray matter. Um, and then the white matter is the connectors. So think like wires between electrical circuits. Like where are those wires? Like what are the, what gauge are they? Whatever, right? Yeah, you can think of, uh, so what you're saying is you can think of the gray matter as like the brain of a computer or like a, CPU, but then yeah. the thing that connects the CPU to your display are, is the white matter, or connects the components of that computer to each other. Yeah, is so the CPU to GPU to like all the, yeah. all those to memory to all those things. That's that's what, what's white matter. So the the way that if we were to follow that analogy, the way that you would think about this is you have imagine a system that is extremely efficient and when information goes in it goes exactly where it's supposed to go and then uh, it's processed and then uh, feedback is given out so uh, the other analogy that i give is imagine a um the you know the mazes that you get on the bag back of cereal boxes yeah imagine a really simple one of those that's like a typical brain so um person reads the word cat it goes directly to the audio processing part of the brain and then it is processed as cat, and then you understand that that word says cat. So the difference between a dyslexic brain and a neurotypical brain is that the, 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 there is a slight um, imbalance in where that density of gray matter is. So we'll see like higher density of gray matter in people uh, who are neurotypical in parts of their audio processing, um, and then very well-established white matter links. Um, so uh, white matter is not uniformly distributed, uh, distributed within a neurotypical brain, like very efficient connections. So the, the beauty of dyslexia is that white matter is fairly evenly distributed around the brain. So th how that, what that looks like in terms of like my puzzle analogy, imagine like a very complicated puzzle to get to somewhere. Now, this leads to the issues and that along with the, the, the gray matter density 
leads to the issues that we see in dyslexia sometimes and well at least what we describe as issues is that processing can take longer um it can come out with mistakes because along the way stuff gets lost and it means that like we're not going to become like super fluent when it comes to like reading and yep. spelling and all those things but the, the power in that is that when information goes in to a dyslexic brain is it sees everywhere in the brain right so yeah. it goes it the, the interconnective ability of a dyslexic brain is its real power and that's when we talk storytelling brain that's because you're able to create a narrative in your head or you're able to link something that could be quite mundane to a bunch of other things yeah. and then remember it back in a much more robust way that, than someone yeah. who has that process might take longer and it, it might be a bit more complicated to teach yourself that subject than somebody who has a regular brain but in the end you, you retain it for longer and in doing so you also have learned more about the topic you learn more about the topic and like you learn stuff that the, potentially there's insights there that aren't available to others due to that interconnective way of learning um think of it as you know like a, like a business analogy would be imagine if you had a board meeting about every single decision not yeah. very efficient but you might come up with some really creative solutions yeah. right um whereas if a neurotypical brain is like i have a question about marketing i'm going to go speak to the marketing team yeah right um so yeah i think that's a that, that that in a nutshell is kind of that like dyslexic brain and like why it functions the way that it does so that's a really good i think segue because for you we all get diagnosed at different spots and it's probably because of our brain that we're getting diagnosed that's where dyslexia is right uh, i got diagnosed when i was really young for dyslexia i got diagnosed when i was in grade three i think um and i was they, they knew since I was in about preschool or kindergarten, uh, largely because I could not read. I hated reading. They'd give me the books that they were assigned re readers, and I could not, I could not do it. Um, yeah. So they were just waiting till I was old enough to actually get me to do one of the tests. But you got diagnosed quite late. You got diagnosed when you were twelve years old. Which yeah, I think was around grade yeah, eight. somewhere between like no. So I would have been grade. England's different. So we, I'd have been grade six, but that would have put me grade seven here yeah, yeah yeah so somewhere around that space yeah and then when were, when were the symptoms like first evident when did you first know you had either something where we probably think when we we're young something wrong with us or your parents kind of saw you having a learning difference oh so i think for my parents it was apparent very early on um i uh, i was very late to speaking and being able to communicate in general um which it can be like a telltale sign um, for neurodiversity. Um, no, no, there was no issues around like general cognitive delays, but definitely I wasn't really speaking in sentences till three, which is late, I'm told. Um, so they knew. And then when I was at school, I think I was actually identified pretty early on, but um, because I went to a small rural school, it doesn't really matter if you've got a diagnosis or not all that much because yeah <laughs> the supports you receive are going to be pretty much the same um but yeah i was i think i would have been flagged fairly early um i knew i i always felt like a disconnection from what i was able to communicate to what i was thinking and um back then we we had like um tiered classrooms so 
um, you got sat on a table with people who were believed to be the same mental ability as you. And I was sat on the table with a lot of people with like quite severe um, uh, yeah. birth disorders or um, there was a couple nonverbal people on my, on my table. I remember at elementary school and, um, and I, yeah, I, I didn't, I never really understood why, like I didn't know what was going on. And then, so how did this make you feel then? Were you, Oh, like I, it, incredible frustration. And I think this is something that for most people I speak to who have dyslexia feel the same way. It's this, um, knowledge that, that you have and just like this inability to communicate it in a way that is digestible to others. So yeah, like I loved math and I loved science and I loved like understanding the world. Um, but it doesn't matter if you can't write it down, you know? So, um, that was, it was just immense frustration because I knew that I could do this stuff and I just, there was like this door that was stopping me from being able to do it. And I think, um, yeah, that, that, that was how I felt most of the time and frustration and stupid. Like I think it has a real effect on your confidence when school becomes a place that you go to, to feel stupid. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the demotivating, especially for me at a young age, my school that I was at before I came here was really bad at, um, like they say, giving me accommodations and the teachers didn't understand it. There was no education for the teachers to understand it. And there's no incentive, there was no benefit for them to learn how to, why, what, I learned, what these learning differences are. So a lot of the time, despite my accommodations being a legally binding document, they'd go completely ignored. I'd have the same amount of time on tests as someone who's regular. They'd sit me on a group with a bunch of people and make me do timed math problems, which, as you probably can imagine, yeah. um, didn't would never end that well. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I can hear you there. People are <laughs> like, oh, you've got a math degree. Like, what's uh, 75 times 62? And I was like, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to take me a while to figure it out. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's really interesting because you've talked about how your school dealt with this, but then, interestingly enough, you were, I think when we talked about this before, you said you were decelerated in almost every course but math. Yeah, so math and science, um, originally I was accelerated in and then, um, yeah, so I, and like, honestly, like my frustration with education came out as, and, and I think that there's, there's, there's nuance to everything, right? And I think that a lot of people who have learning differences often talk negatively of school but like i this this isn't i don't think that's a fair yeah that makes sense um i don't think that's fair for me to come at that angle like i had a bunch of educators who really believed in me and saw yeah um my capability and like i am forever thankful for those people there's always there's always some bad people but we have to remember there's always people out there who are trying to help and make a difference and you may hopefully have one of those people in your life absolutely and as an educator i can tell you that we don't do it for the money um yeah (laughs) so uh we, we do it because we care and like often people are just they've got the the handcuffed by either the system they operate in or the way that they the way that they view the world mm-hmm. so um sorry that, that's slightly off topic no, I just no, wanted to I give think, that caveat. that's important yeah um so what, what was the the question i can't remember now but i can ask you another one if you'd like no um what we, we were talking about um being de- de- yeah so yeah. um yeah it, it was frustrating because i in english obviously i was terrible but like 
I understood the themes of a book, like I could debate it, I could do all those things, but I was removed from the classroom. Um, I, yeah, so there's partly for behavior, I had a desk outside my math, uh, outside of my English classroom that I had to sit at and I wasn't allowed (laughs) in the room. And then, then I was also pulled out to go do like extra support blocks. And back then they weren't like free, like they were just... I had to go into a room with a with people who I didn't identify with, with work that I despised and made me feel really stupid. Um, it was very much a deficit-based model back then, and like I I I'm a huge proponent of strength-based now, and I can tell you that because I I went through that deficit model and it, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, yeah. And how did you um? How were you able to like cope with this to stay motivated? Because especially when you're a young age, I know for myself when I was going through a system, not quite at like yours, but still not very good for my accommodations. Um, it was really hard for me to keep motivated and push myself through it. So did you have any strategies you'd use or is there any like escape you found? Um, honestly, so, uh, the, I know that's a bit you, of a hard you, question. No, 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 yeah. no. I, 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 you can, you can call me anything and I won't be offended apart from being, calling me self-made. Like I, uh, we all exist as part of a system of people who support one another and that community and and like as as crappy as some of my experiences were um some of my experiences were really great like my high school physics teacher we just used to sit and talk about like the collapse of probability waves during a class where i'm supposed to be measuring the resistance on a piece of copper you know um and like it was conversations like that that really drove me and i always was really motivated in terms of not necessarily the curriculum but just by learning and i love to learn and and i think that that confidence that you gain um through learning a new skill or understanding a new skill or feeling safe in a space cannot be underestimated and like i i was lucky enough to have like uh, a rugby club I played rugby my whole life and like that that was the place where I felt like safe and I could express myself and I was terrible at rugby growing up as well um and it was just uh, that I think rugby was a big part of what gave me the confidence to allow myself to fail in school um and fail in a good way uh and same to go with the teachers like I think many of the teachers I spoke to like they knew they knew that the curriculum wasn't really for me yeah and i i was never going to excel and they just allowed me to um they just allowed me to uh yeah learn learn what about stuff that i found interesting and listen to ideas and um yeah like the the as for specific strategies no like you figure it out right like no like the, the putting the, pa- the the colored paper over the page didn't work like all that kind of stuff i just learned yeah. to <laughs> you learn to dissect the information that you need and not read the whole document right yeah. and you learn to in how to conceptualize that information with all the other different bits of information that you have yeah. um have we just hit is the aircon just switched on or something yeah it was a bit um that was a bit unfortunate timing but it's good right we yeah. pushed through it um so how did your parents feel when they like found how your school was treating you because this didn't seem like maybe the best way to 
support somebody? Was that just the general convention at the time? You know, I'm a bit younger than you, so I've had slightly yeah, different experience. Yeah, slightly. Um, no, honestly, like, I think they were they were excited to find out that I was dyslexic. So they were like, finally, we've got a name to put to this. Like, yeah. what's going on with this kid? Like, <laughs> um, I hated it. Like, I just, I did not, I did not need another reason to be different. I was al al already the weird kid and I did not need something else. So I... I cried when I found out I was dyslexic yeah. um, and I just like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go to the extra classes. I hate everything about this. Like I push back hard. I'm like, I have my own strategies. I don't need yours. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> but I think it, so my parents, um, did, I think in elementary school, they were, they were fine with how everything was going. It was, occasionally it was actually in high school when i had the occasional teacher who didn't understand um my profile and also to be completely transparent i was a bit of a nightmare in the classroom as well so to be to give these teachers their dues like my mum came in and batted for me and like did the whole like meetings with teachers and like demand a classroom move and all that kind of stuff and poor innocent blake like i was not innocent in that space like i I was acting out. Was I acting out as a as a reaction to what was happening in the space? Potentially, but the teacher also has to teach 20, 29 other students in that space. Yeah. So um, focusing just really quickly on the parents, I think that's a really important one, especially if you're a parent of someone who is yeah. dyslexia. Um, they might have executive functioning issues. Like I, I know I do. Um, I think Mr. Mahov uh, Blake, you have <laughs> something. Might have something similar. Yeah. Um, and it really comes down to making sure you as a parent can support your child because they're not going to be able to get the support on their own, especially totally. at a young age. Um, the, the, how I explain it to parents is like your frontal lobe um, is, is your executive functioning, right? And in boys, it develops slower than girls. Um, and without that, those connections there, you will see teenage boys make terrible decisions until they're about 35. Now, an extent extension of that is they will not be able to organize themselves and you will become so frustrated and being like, just put your shoes on and th they can't get their head around why they can't put, get the kid's shoes on. But yeah, what yeah. I have to, what I say is for this period in your child's life, you have to be this executive functioning for them. You have to be their frontal lobe until they develop those skills themselves. You have to model it. You have to work hard. And that's, um, it's funny because my dad is quite clearly severely dyslexic as well like he he can't really read or write um never has and he, he's an immigrant too so learning a second language to read and write is going to be yeah. next to impossible for him right yeah they call that's what they always say if you want to learn a second language as someone with a learning difference or dyslexia you have to go full immersion right yeah, yeah. you can't just learn it half part time no. you have to be only speaking that language your 90 percent has to be that language so you can you know connect yeah. it to your the English equivalents of those words. Yeah. So or it, in our case, the English equivalents. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was always funny. Me and my dad, the blind leading the blind, like both with like terrible executive functioning. Yeah. Both, both just all over the place all the time. Neither of us being able to read all right. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dad, like, how do I spell this? He was like, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, I think it's, yeah, you, you, you've got to step in and do a bit of that organizational piece and also support the organization organizational um yeah. strategies that for for the for the kid but honestly a lot of the time i'm like they're going to figure out strategies that work given yeah. if you allow them to 
fail and to push forward and you just you don't need to you don't need to be a helicopter if just because yeah. your, your child is dyslexic but it's still important to make sure if let's say they're having an issue at school where maybe yeah. a teacher is not giving them their accommodations it and they're trying to express it to this teacher and nothing's happening then it might be a good idea to step in totally and i think that like the big power in that is like educating uh parents educating themselves on like what a psych uh, what a psych ed is what an iep is and how that affects the student's learning uh, and like the rights that those documents bring to a student i think that that advocacy piece when communicated in a respectful way um that is really how you like push the dial if i think we're quite good at it at this school about meeting those accommodations um but i understand that maybe not everyone's there or you know what like a lot of learning support teachers uh have caseloads of 80 students and yeah. they they just they need they need the support and uh, my big advice to parents is be supportive not confrontational when you come to those like yeah those meetings be like how can i help out at home what are you doing at school how can i mirror that um hey i know i've read the iep and i've noticed that it's missing this accommodation that was outlined in the psych ed how can we go about changing that yeah um I think when you come in guns blazing, it's just a human reaction to yeah to step back and a bit. Protecting your uh, protecting your child. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so going back to your math, because you did mention you had a degree in math during this episode so far, yeah. um, and it was your strongest subject in high school. You've told me no. Well, no, no, no I no. actually dropped out of math and when I was sixteen, so I never took any higher level. Okay. Um, math courses but at, eventually you, know, you got a degree in I did. computational mathematics do you I, want to talk a bit about that journey yeah i mean look i love math i'm a big old math nerd um and when i was at school and the way that it was delivered and i think that bc is doing a fantastic job of like shifting the dial on this is imagine you signed up for a fine art course and you only ever taught how to whitewash walls right yeah. that is what high school math was like for me and it did not connect with me i did not connect with my teacher um i didn't it, it was very procedural and less like understanding based which like i'm sure your experience of math is the same like i'm, I'm i suck at procedure but i'm i'm good at concept right so i if you're like this then this then this then this like those those are going to get mixed around yeah. but if you tell me well what do you feel this triangle should look like i'm like ah i feel like it should be acute yeah. <laughs> on the on this edge right um that that kind of like understanding came a bit easier to me and i guess although i departed from high school math um i never took those higher level courses i kind of continued my math education in the same way that i did like i took physics but i never really like material physics i find like quite dull so i was i was reading books about like star formation and um string theory and uh and quantum physics while also like ham-fisting my way through some course where i had to measure how many times a pendulum swings back and forth yeah. right um so I did the same with math. So I was reading about Fermat's last theorem and I was reading about topology and all these things and like YouTube as well. Oh my God, I was fascinated by all these YouTube videos about math and this like world that had never been opened up to me. So when I got to university, um, I started on a business course and at this time I was really intensely into like my recreational mathematics, shall we say? And I was like, screw this. I'm just going to do a math degree. Um, 
which was a, a big old learning curve because you realize like when you go into a degree that is tailored for math from the get-go yeah because uh, that's how it goes in the uk you don't really have electives you go and you say i'm doing a math degree and then it's math yeah. right um like you're, you're at a pretty huge deficit right yeah so i had never done any high level high level courses i'd never done anything past the equivalent of math 10 you originally studied with a business though, a business right? degree for all of about three months why was that uh what was that why was that your choice um because like i i it, it's interesting i think like it's very i i saw it as problem solving and i like i think that's ultimately what our brains are good at is problem solving and finding unique solutions to problems and that's my family's also in business so it it just felt like a fit but honestly marco i just didn't really know what i wanted to do and i knew i wanted to go yeah. to university because it'd be a fun time and yeah. i thought like what's well, a pretty low barrier to entry here so oh, i can do uh advertising and brand management course whatever that means yeah um yeah but it was it was terrible and then you switched into math into math and gave myself a real crash course on calculus in about two weeks and just this is like even um my first year or so of teaching um like i know these concepts but i've never been formally taught them so yeah. it was this very even then i'm like oh okay calculus 12 well i i learned absolutely what i needed to learn about calculus yeah. and then i moved on right so it, it's uh it was again another one of those exercises i think which is vital for people with learning differences is knowing what you like figuring that prioritizing what you need to know and how you can conceptualize that yeah um and you know math can be a bit challenging for people with learning differences i think for me that came before i found some strategies to cope which usually for me are visualizing the problem or drawing yep. it out um do you have any strategies you'd like to share about when you were taking your math degree how how might you might have broken down a problem or how you might yeah approach a problem so where you see people with dyslexia struggle with math and we talk about these like math specific disabilities now um is when we move away from conceptual and into abstract and that shift to abstract if it's if it's not conceptualized can be very jarring yeah. for students so when we talk about when I, what I mean by that is like the introduction of algebra, the introduction of fractions, um, anything that isn't just, I have five apples and then I add three apples, yeah. right? Um, because then you step into this world of, of, of abstractness. And what the, the, the strategy that I've always given is find as many ways as you can to understand a topic, right? So a teacher will teach you in a way historically in a way that made sense to them but the problem with math teachers is for the most part they're all good at math yeah in the way that they were taught it so um whereas like like our math department here is incredible and they're always adapting and trying to massive diversity to their backgrounds yeah so. totally like we're, we're very very um privileged here to have that um i would challenge i would say anyone who's finding trouble with math at the moment is go go try and think about it a different way go find someone who talks about it in a different way um understand that potentially the conceptual understanding is going to come before the procedural understanding for yeah. you so and what, what I, you're I, saying is let's say you have a teacher and they're teaching you a subject and you're not understanding it from yeah. them and you go to them again and maybe they don't explain it well enough for you to understand maybe find a different teacher who might have a different way of approaching the same problem or challenge that teacher right say yeah. hey can you explain this in a different way yeah. and like 
as a teacher, I can tell you, and speaking to the other teachers, that is a question that we love because like we like we are still learning ourselves and trying to conceptualize things in different ways. Yeah. Um, and just always say like, well, can you explain that to me in a different way? I think that that's um really valuable and and understand that like you have like that you have a advantage in terms of conceptual understanding of abstract subjects so by that i mean yeah you might not remember what like is it opposite over hypotenuse or hypotenuse over opposite um like which one is that you might not remember that but think about like why those things happen and then the procedural stuff will come after. So the way a lot of people are taught, the way a lot of people learn is procedure then concept. Do like flip it around, do concept then procedure. And I I think that that's always a really useful tool. Like once you understand what's going on with numbers, knowing how to manipulate them and what tools to apply to the manipulation of them becomes a lot more streamlined. So you ended up getting your degree in computational mathematics. Do you want to talk a bit about what that is and why that stood out to you with your yeah, so, learning profile? So I did my, um, I did like my final year was all based towards computational methods. So uh, dynamical systems um, and chaos. And then uh, also did some like cryptography stuff as well, which is a really cool mixing of those computational methods and number theory. But primarily I was looking at modeling and particularly in ODE solvers um creating models but then also creating the solvers that that go into those models um and for like ODEs ordinary differential equations uh yeah that they're, they're really helpful at, at finding solutions to problems that are changing I think might be a decent way to describe that um and why was I attracted to that it's uh computers like i like computers yeah. but also um it's problem solving right like i um you don't have to store a huge amount of information and in, in specific information in your head because the computer does that for you yeah and like our brains aren't good at that we're not good at yeah. storing a ton of specific information but yeah, we evolve for hunting on fields not for <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. so um we it it it, it helps to see big picture when you're programming these things like if you get stuck down in the nitty gritty like you sometimes like your code will break and you, you fix that problem and it breaks somewhere else but like you don't know how those sections sometimes speak to each other but whereas i think that that interconnected way of thinking that dyslexic people have really allows you to see some oh, okay like i have this problem and i know how i'm going to attack it in a general sense now i can now I can know how these like little things speak yeah. to each other. And luckily the computer does all the little things for you. Um, so you get to come up with some really novel solutions to potentially like established problems um, and get to code them a different way. Are they more efficient? Are they like going to, are they taking in a new consideration that they've never been able to do before? Um, yeah. And I, I think there's something, there's this immediate feedback that comes with, um, mathematics and coding where your program will tell you immediately if it's not yeah. working right and you're like okay cool you get right, a nice bar that says error error blah 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 line yeah here's an error here's here's an explanation that makes no sense to anybody uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and now fix it and you're like okay cool um but yeah and honestly like a big thing that drew, drew me towards that is like there was 
next to no academic writing attached to it right like my my final year thesis was largely code it was like 150 pages of code that i submitted yeah. with like uh 20 pages of text right so that was a huge draw um and moving back towards sports because i think sports is a really good ex- way to keep your brain moving uh by brain moving i mean your body moving and your yeah. brain working because yeah. you know taking a break every now and then or having something that you know gets blood flowing is not only healthy but also i think important for people with learning differences and you are one of the best rugby players in canada as of this year or last year yeah, you're uh, on the rugby, rugby league players rug, rugby to, league uh, players yeah. yeah um you're on the canadian national rugby league uh uh team yep sounds funny to say but yeah (laughs) but the team after league uh but um would you like to tell us a little bit of your journey through rugby and how it can coincided with your journey through dyslexia um i like i love i love rugby i love i i i think i was very fortunate to end up playing in elite environments um for a long time like i got i've now got to represent two countries um in england and canada and i'm like extremely proud of that but the, the the things that really drew me to rugby was a sense of community and safety and i think that that's a huge lesson that we need to take into our classrooms like how do the how do we get the most out of our ed, out of our students out of our children and it's given them the safety that they can attack challenge and it safety doesn't mean removal of challenge it means making challenge uh, approachable so where like my my journey through rugby i i have this coach um my first coach sam bailey he is adamant he's like first time blake showed up at training i knew it was something special now i know that he's lying because yeah. i was terrible like i couldn't catch i couldn't pass <laughs> like i couldn't kick i couldn't do any of the things like i was very willing to like try things but uh, yeah, no, I I, I was yeah. I was terrible, and I, I I think part of that's probably to do with like my brain structure too, like the fine motor control and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that took me a little while to figure out too, getting hand eye coordination working the way it should. Exactly right. Yeah. It, it takes time, yeah. and, but like what the community rugby club was able to do was give you that like safe space to to a safe, a safe space with structure with adults who care and a, and a brotherhood of people around you who also care about your success and you care about theirs like it's a very reciprocal relationship yeah, and so it's kind of in contrast to your school environment where you might have had teachers who put in these groups of students who different yeah. needs than you but in doing so by separating you from the people who were actually in your community made you feel maybe more isolated or less confident in your yeah self. totally yeah. and where like I they hold they'll held me to standards. I'm not saying it was all sunshine and rainbows yeah, at course, rugby. Yeah. Like you know, like people occasionally will yell at you and they'll they'll hold you accountable and they'll they'll put firm boundaries in. But in the way that they can do that through connection, you create safety. So I was, um, I was able to like express myself on the field and and like I I have um. I have some other diagnoses uh, around like attention, um, ADD they used to call it. I'm not hyperactive, but I, uh, yeah. So uh, I feel that there's there's a few places in my life where I feel calm, and 
on the rugby field is one of them. The, which the, is the one place where you're probably going to be tackled. And tackled where you've got like 13 guys who are all trying to kill you. That's your, that's your calm. Well, that's, that's, your my, that's my zen space, right? <laughs> because at that moment, like it feels like that's where my brain fits. Like yeah. when everything's going on, you've got all this stimuli. Um, I'm able to, like you're able to see small things. And it's when I speak to rugby players who have learning differences, they, they describe the same ish, the same view of the field. Like they see everything at once and then they're able to, um, perceive, like they're able to see threats, like see opportunities and it, it all, it's in this like constant flow state. Um, so that paired with like the community aspect and the safety aspect just allows for this, like, it's like, it's graceful and it's poetic, honestly, like the, the, the ability to be out there and be part of this interconnected team of even the people you're playing against, you're connected with like in a very like meaningful way. Right. And then to also be experiencing this flow state, like I get, I get goosebumps thinking about it. And, um, again, this is like, no, again, I was terrible and I went on to have yeah. like a, a professional career and represent my country. And that all comes from like, I think a unique mix of being able to use those perceived disadvantages to like the evolutionarily advantage that they yeah. were designed for. Right. Like if you're thinking, how does a hunter operate? Like they need to see everything at once and then spot little things that that go wrong um like there's a broken branch over there like a typical brain would find it very difficult to see that but um i was sitting in a um in a class a lecture a few months ago and it was about debating yeah and i'm sitting in there and i'm close to the midsection of this massive lecture hall behind the behind the speaker there's the stained glass window and you know how they have little metal like uh rails that hold the glass yeah. together uh everyone's just like oh that's a nice window but then what i see is i see that little little glass pane in the bottom left corner is missing. There's yes. a little hole in the yeah. window and no one else noticed that. I'm at the pretty much at the back of the piece I came in late. I'm at the yeah. back and I'm sitting there and that's, I just get, I can see this small piece of glass that's yeah. not there anymore, but it used to. And then, and then the lecture's ruined for you, right? Yeah, like, and it's ruined. <laughs> I'm like, I, I can just focus on the, the hole in the window. But yes. Yeah. So um, again, this, I think it speaks again to like neurodiversity being labeled as a disability given the structure that it exists yeah. in. It's all conceptual, right? And it's, is, is that a disability when you're living in nature? Absolutely not. Right. Like it's, no. it's a huge advantage for, for like that percentage of people who have it. And lo and behold, like maybe about 20% of the population need to actually be hunters within a yeah. within a community right or need to maybe 10 percent need to be storytellers and 10 percent need to be hunters you know so it's um uh yes to again just it's nice that we circle back to that disability thing but yeah i think sport has always given me a safety net which has allowed me to fail through the community that it has um and, and with either less severe consequences than failing in school right? oh yeah yeah it make it makes everything okay like i think if um the yeah yeah if we get to a closing point i can i can round it up a bit but i think for parents out there who are looking for advice like expose your child to as much as you can and build that build those that gray matter in all those weird places yeah. that interconnectivity in all those weird strange places don't hyper focus on anything and make them create safety and challenge for them 
Yeah, I was going to say thank you for uh, thank you for sharing your journey. We are running a bit long <laughs> okay. time, and I was about to ask you for a, for like a closing a closing remark, and I think that's a really good way to put it. So, uh, you, had, you shared some great thoughts on not only your school journey, your opinion of the dyslexic brain, and the benefits of sports, uh, especially for someone who might feel a bit isolated in their school community. Yeah, um, and this amazing stuff that I'm sure uh-huh. tons of people will love to hear about. And thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. This has been incredible. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Dyslexia and Beyond. I can't wait to see you next month when we interview Shimmy Kang, a Harvard psychiatrist who has written several books on technology and parenting, as well as is an expert in mental health.